there are probably kids in the Wisconsin area playing youth baseball and emulating your delivery. Did you ever stop and think about that? Uh, you know, I think that's one of the coolest things. I think that's why we do this. Like I said, um, you know, just the, I mean, it's a kid's game at the end of the day. We're all just all trying to have fun with it. Um, but, but knowing a kid, uh, you know, watched me on TV, came to a baseball game um, and, and enjoyed how I pitched. And I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what you want. Uh, you want, you want that to, uh, to touch, you know, it's just something little just by playing a game, but you know, you could, you could touch kid's heart just by, you know, playing what you love and, and him obviously having the same passion in the game. Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you to episode 19 of Toe in the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, where we try to take you deep into the art of pitching every single show. And we do it with the five-time World Series champ, the signing award winner, David Cohn, the crack researcher, James Smythe, and myself. And on this podcast for this week, we talk to our first closer, guys. And if Look, if you're a fan out there or maybe even a pitcher out there who is curious about modern arm maintenance, among other topics, David, I think this week's guest really brings something to the table. Yeah, you know, it's, it's in the modern game, relievers have, have obviously come to the forefront and they're more important than ever. Starters are going fewer innings. But I can tell you this, that one of the best receptions you will get when a reliever comes in the game in terms of crowd reaction is for Josh Hader when he walks in from the Milwaukee Brewers bullpen. It is dynamic. The fans love him. He's got a pretty good history going there over the last few years. He is dynamic. That left-handed delivery, it's it's style, it's dominance. Um, it, it's his his fastball, and now and now he's uh, you know complementing that with other pitches. The secondary pitches have gotten better, but you talk about an exciting reliever. The fans really gravitate to and react to it's it's Josh Hader right now in today's game, especially in Milwaukee with some of the successes they've had there. Yeah, when you see Josh on the mound, you you see that dominant fastball, obviously, and and the way the delivery just flows to the plate, I think it suits his body type so well. We do get into this, but I I, I have this like analogy in my head, like watching him with his delivery motioning to the plate. It's like taking your hand out of a glove because it's glove-like it fits him so perfectly well but there's a lot of work that obviously goes into that so we get into that with Josh we touch on that type of work that he puts in when it comes to taking care of his arm and his pitching routine and he also talks about how his manager Craig Council gets the most out of that Brewers clubhouse there's there's one constant there in the NL Central through the last several years it is Milwaukee and especially with that pitching staff I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon and we also we, we get to touch on how Josh's admiration for Dontrell Willis plays a role in his pitching. So plenty more with Josh Hader. James, you know, maybe from a statistical standpoint, but some of his accolades, what should we know about Josh Hader? Flat out, one of the most dominant pitchers in the game, maybe the most dominant, especially when you go on a, on a per inning type of basis. Overwhelming in both limiting runs, 226 ERA, one, two, three ERA this year, but also strikeouts. That's the name of the game with these modern bullpens. And he's as good at it as any pitcher who's ever lived. 482 career strikeouts in 282 innings is ludicrous. He's been an all-star in each of the last three all-star games, 18, 19, and 21. We didn't have the all-star game in the short in 2020 season, of course. And he's a three-time Trevor Hoffman award winner. Uh, as the best reliever in the National League, he's gotten that award three times. He's dominant, and he's here to stay because he's in his prime, and he's a big part of what the Brewers are doing. Yeah, and he was really gracious and giving us some some quality time here talking about all things pitching, and he has a bevy of hobbies as well, and we talk about some of his stuff that he does off the field. So we'll chat with Josh. We'll get into this week in pitching history, three up, three down, the whole routine, but we start with the opener each and every week. And David, I mean, the, the CBA developments over the last week or so, there's been activity the last couple of weeks, but a lot has transpired over the last seven days or so between the league requesting for some federal mediation, the union rejecting that. And then, you know, the day that we're recording this here on Monday afternoon, the labor secretary, Marty Walsh, made it a point to say that he has spoken to the league and the players association about the 
ongoing negotiations and, ha- and how he was giving his encouragement for both sides to stay engaged with one another and try and find a resolution. Just when it came to some of those subject matters, when you hear the phrase federal mediation, like what do you, what do you make of it all? Because a lot of it happened with you in the 90s when you were playing. Yes, uh, the the mediator's name was Bill Ussery back in 1994-95, and he was brought in at the last minute after the World Series was canceled, and there was a real impasse, or at least, uh, you know, at least we were close to an impasse. There was two different frameworks, there had been negotiations all winter long. And, you know, that was the time when you, you know, media, federal mediator usually is brought in when you're close to an impasse. That's not the case this time. I mean, it was the owners declared a lockout. They waited about six weeks before they got to the bargaining table. They seemed to be making, making some concessions. At least the players association felt like they were bargaining in good faith. They were expecting a counter proposal. And now all of a sudden there's this request for a federal mediator. And it just, the timing of it all was, was suspect. And that's what we're hearing from the players association was that the timing's all wrong. This seems like a PR ploy. Uh, why now you promised us two days ago, you were going to make another counter offer. We, we seem to be making progress. Let's stay at the table. So yeah, it, it feels like this, it feels a little orchestrated, right? The, the initiation of the lockout, the language behind it from Rob Manfred, the commissioner to the point of now where all of a sudden out of nowhere, we're requesting a federal mediator you know, I really don't blame the Players Association for rejecting it at this point. I think you you should be at the bargaining table still. We, you know, we're making some progress. Let's try. Let's keep trying this. And uh, so, you know, I understand the sentiment. It, 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 it kind of felt like, you know, it was out, out of sorts or out of place at this time, the timing of the request for the, for the mediator. Yeah, at this time, does feel like a little bit of posturing. And also, you heard a lot of chat on social media talking about, that period in the 90s, specifically 94, that federal mediation didn't work then. Why would it work now, so to speak? David, why did it not work during the moments leading up to the 94 stoppage? Well, you know, I, the, the thing is, is that the owners on their side, I think you have to understand labor law and, and the owners, if they can theoretically bargain to an impasse, then the owners and the commissioner can unilaterally implement whatever working rules uh, that their last offer was. So that that's the trick of the game is bargaining in good faith to a, a legitimate impasse. And once that happens, then the leverage goes to the owner side, then they can, they can make, you know, they can unilaterally implement whatever they want at that point. So, you know, the only thing I can think of, and I've said this all along, is that it's always been a three-headed battle. There's large markets versus small markets are the first two phases of, of this equation. And, and then the players are kind of the third third wheel here. Maybe uh, from a strategy point, uh, you know, that, that uh, Commissioner Manfred was trying to break a log jam between the owners themselves. Maybe that's why he requested the mediator. And that's sort of reading the tea leaves on the Players Association side. Why did they do this now? Do they have a jam up on their side? Are they trying to send a message to the owner's side to, to break up whatever log jams they have on that side? You know, that, that's, that, that's what goes into it on the players association side, trying to figure that out, trying to read the messages that are being sent and the timing of everything. And, you know, it, it was awkward at best. And, you know, I, I, as I said before, you know, unless you know for certain that maybe the, the, this was a ploy to break up the small markets and the large markets and get them to the bargaining table, uh, you know, to me, the timing was all wrong. So I understand why it was rejected. That's interesting. And I'm not trying to, you know, make light of this, like it's some type of, you know, drama feature here, but that would be some subplot, right? The league, because you always associate the league and all of the owners together. Obviously you, you probably have that faction of small market owners and big market owners, but then the league pretty, pretty much telling that end, Hey guys, let's go get it together. Time's a waste and we need to act. And maybe that's why they do. It's, it's a to, legitimate, it's a legitimate yeah. uh, concern or a legitimate point because you, you have to understand out of 30 major league owners, eight can block anything. If you have a group of eight owners that get together, they can stop anything. And so if that is the case and the vote is that close and only the owners know that only Rob Manfred, the commissioner knows what the vote tally is on whatever the current offer is that, you know, that you would just have to think, uh, 
you know, maybe he's doing this as a ploy to break up that block of eight. Maybe there really is a block of eight or are they more unified on the owner side? Is there more than eight owners who disagree with the course of, of, of the negotiations or who, who have specific needs that they want that aren't being addressed. So, you know, that that's, it it really does become psychological trying to read the messages and uh, you know, it is possible. It's very plausible that, you know, maybe there is a block of eight owners that are together that, you know, need to be broken up somehow. And maybe that was a cry for help from, from the commissioner's office or the lead negotiator, you know, some sort of cry for help. Uh, that's where the mediator was requested. Do you think that could be one of the big factors as to why we have yet to see around the clock negotiating or just more gatherings between the two sides? You know, that there's always a staking of positions, you know, and, and the, the thing that most federal mediators do and most any any mediation really is what they call split the baby. So two sides have been staked out and now all of a sudden you bring in a mediator and, and you're, you're gearing for the midpoint. So the halfway point, that's how arbitration works. That's how a lot of negotiations work. And, you know, maybe the owners on their side, too, thought, I like our position the way it is now. If we can get a mediator in we can live with a halfway point. And that's where the mediator would drive this agreement, the halfway point between where the players are now and where the owners are now. And only they really know all the issues where they exactly are in terms of uh, all the core economic issues. Uh, so yeah, maybe, maybe they like their, their stance right now and they're pushing to get to the midpoint as opposed to continue to negotiate. If you continue to negotiate in, in good faith and make concessions, the goalposts move in terms of that midpoint. So, so that, you know, that's part of the overall strategy here is maybe they're trying to trap the midpoint as they say on the owner side and the players want to keep bargaining in good faith. Let's find, let's find answers to competitive balance. Let's find answers to uh, tanking service manipulation. You know, let's keep talking. Let's come up with creative ideas and the owners might just be saying, you know what, we like our position where it is now and let's try to trap the midpoint right here. The more you're, talking here, the more you do get a firmer sense of a stall on the owner's side, because what did we have late last week as well? A bunch of players on Twitter kind of talking out and the common theme was, Hey, a big part of a collective bargaining agreement is the bargaining. And they're really showing that the lack of activity, I thought that was really interesting because every player nearly with a Twitter account came together and talked about that. As we take a look here though, like we're already a full week into February, would it be accurate to say that there's maybe roughly two weeks left on the calendar before missing games becomes a real possibility? And, unless you can do, you know, a three week spring training, which is what was done in 1995, then you're looking at maybe the first week of March as a cutoff day. Yeah. For maybe pitchers, March. though, that's tough, though, no? Well, pitchers are doing their own thing now that they're throwing, you know, a lot of pitchers are way ahead of the game compared to 1995 when mm-hmm. some guys didn't pick up a ball the whole off season. So yeah, theoretically you could think uh, that the pitchers are going to be ready to get ramped up. They're doing their side sessions. A lot of them have their private facilities that they go to now anyway, with all of the modern technology. So it's a different game, a different animal, but you could still do a three week spring training. And, and start the season pretty close to on time. And to, to me, that brings the deadline closer to the first week in March. Right. And some of the looking at some of the historical uh, work stoppages, sometimes it, it, there was a strike or a lockout uh, that delayed the start of spring training or the players went on strike during spring training and it lasted a week or two weeks. And it didn't really shake up the overall uh, season where they were still able to start on time. So if spring training is shortened by a week, they're they'll just move forward with the regular opening day setup and just work around that. So I think there is, there is a little bit of cushion just because pitchers and catchers are supposed to meet on this date and spring training games are supposed to start on this date. Doesn't necessarily mean that if we pass that, then it's, then it's all over. Yeah, the days are flying off the calendar. It's going to be interesting. And it just feels like it's going to go down to the wire, just like everything in this, this damn yes. sport, um, this lovely, but damn sport, right? <laughs> it always works that way. It's, fr- it's, fr- it's frustrating, but there's a rhythm and a timing to big negotiations, collective bargaining agreements just don't, don't happen overnight. You know, there, there's always a gauging and a regaging and uh, leverage points pressured and, at the last minute, you finally find out, you know, okay, where you stand. Okay. Now's the time to make a deal. And then all of a sudden you make a deal and it always happens that way at the last minute. And there's always going to be uh, uh, 
both sides testing each other to see their, to, to, to test their resolve. Are the players really going to stick together? Will they, you know, you, you hear a statement from a player somewhere that says, Hey, I want to play baseball. And the next thing, you know, the owners are saying, see, we got them. We got them. They're going to crack. They're going to crack. So there's always that gauging that finger to the wind sort of sort of thing that goes on in collective bargaining. All right, let's get to Brewers closer, Josh Hader here on this week, a, a fantastic guest. He really gave us some great insight on a bunch of topics as it relates to what he shows on the mound, how he gets ready, and some inspirations that I would not have thought of until he said it. But then once he did, it really made a lot of sense. So he, he touches on a lot of great subjects here with us on Toe in the Slab. This week's episode, uh, beg your pardon, this week's guest on Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. It is Milwaukee Brewers closer, Josh Hader. Josh, thank you so much for taking some time with us here this week. You are our first closer on Toe in the Slab, so uh, congratulations for what it's worth. But I, w- there, there are a lot of things that we want to talk about here with you and, and the way you kind of take advantage of your body type on the mound and maximize all your athletic abilities. But to start off here, man, you're making content. You have your own YouTube channel, and I have to say, it's really entertaining. You have this this original series, Hater Aids World, Episode 1. You, you did that. You had a whole video on what goes into your throwing routine. But I have a bone to pick with you, man, because there's been one new upload in eight months. So what gives here? Why'd you put a pause on making such awesome content? Well, I appreciate you having me on. Um, you know, one of the main reasons is uh, during the fall, which is roughly right after right after the season, um, you know, get into the hunting world. So that's a little behind, but it's going to it's going to make a little appearance here pretty soon. Um, and, you know, once baseball season hits, I'm, I'm, I'm full go on that. So limited on, on what the content I'm producing, um, hopefully to change that moving forward. Are you editing this stuff? I mean, John Boy Media is hiring content creators. <laughs> So no, no, no editing on my part. I tell you what, that's probably one of the hardest things uh, to do. I have tons of videos. It's, it's the editing part that slows me down. So David, there's a video of, of Josh just taking everyone through his warm-up routine. And it involves a lot of work with resistant bands and some small weights, but also Josh talks about the benefits of doing Pilates and how these techniques can really help serve pitchers. And I think it doesn't matter what your body type is. I think Pilates could probably be beneficial to everyone. Josh, what, what have been the benefits for you with Pilates? Cause I know it's something that you kind of incorporated in recent years. It's not something that's been with you since the start of your baseball journey. Yeah, I think it's, it's been a big key in my training regimen. I think um, my wife introduced me to it. She used to do it a lot. And I tried it out one time and it just allowed me to have a lot of body awareness and really feel um, the parts that, you know, on a reformer where you're moving, uh, standing up sometimes, it kind of gives you that ground force to where that you need in pitching. So it kind of um, helps me just continue to use my body the, in the best way I can. Yeah, you know, that's that's the uh, the thing that I've noticed when we talk to a lot of pitchers, Josh, and thanks again for coming on, Tone, tone with the Slab. Um, you know, the, the thing, the training method seemed to have changed almost overnight, even since you've been in the big leagues. It seems like, you know, guys gone, have gone from no weight rooms back in the 80s and 90s to massive weight lifting, getting strong, and now kind of reverting back to more, you know, like you said, Pilates or more targeted specific type training for pitchers. I mean, how much do you use? Do you you throw the weighted balls. What do you do differently now that, you know, that you've seen in the big leagues in your time so far than when you first broke in? Uh, I, th- I think it's just reading your body more. I, I think the, the weight program is still there. Um, you know, obviously adding Pilates is another uh, benefit on the, my regimen that I use, but um, yeah, I think it goes hand in hand. I think you, you can't really stay on one side or the other. I think you continue to, obviously you need strength through the weights. And, and the power that builds that. And then, you know, just being able to mobilize that strength in the muscles. So you're able to lengthen those. Um, and I think that also helps me out through a, an entire season as well. 
it feels like you, you, you gained a couple ticks on your fastball. I mean, you've always had a great fastball. And, you know, maybe going just strictly to the closer role last year, it looked like maybe you bumped up a couple notches, like 96-plus on a regular average fastball velocity level. Is, is that something you attribute to your offseason training or more of a specific role as, as to just being the closer now? Yeah, I think that also helps just the, the program that I've been through. Um, I actually started getting onto a, a really good arm program. Um, you know, Blair was able to, uh, with the Brewers, he's been able to help me, um, you know, really get on a, a program. And then, you know, being throughout the season, um, Dave and everybody else able to kind of tune me in depending on my workload. And uh, I think arm care is also a, a key role to that, you know, speed bump up and then just, knowing my mechanics and trying to repeat them the best I can. You mentioned arm care. How has that evolved from the time that you turned pro to where we are now going into the 2022 season? Uh, there, it, it's, it's definitely grown on me. Um, you know, when I first came into the big leagues or even professional baseball, um, you know, I, I would just take five pound dumbbells and, and basically do my YTs and, and that's it and call it a day. Obviously, I had bands uh, incorporated into that, but nowadays it's it's more kettlebells, um, you know, kind of just mixing in between that and a lot of scap work. And that's that's really been a, a big success for me. Any weighted balls? Do you throw the weighted balls at all or have you incorporated that? Uh, I've tried a little bit. I, I mostly do the reverse throws. I, right. I don't really like throwing the weighted too going forward, but. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things that are hitter, uh, you know, you really pick what you like and, and add that to it. And I think that's just anything uh, that you learn throughout the game is you'll, you'll find things that work better for you and, um, you know, things that don't. So it's not always a, a program that you follow. It's kind of your own program uh, that you kind of assort throughout playing. We have James Smythe here too, uh, Josh, and he's uh... I'm a historian, uh, you know, he, he covers a lot of ground and fills in the blanks, makes us all a little smarter. So I'd like to turn it over to him and tell us a little bit about Josh Hader's career. It's been remarkable so far, and, you know, in, in four or five years now, what, what a mark he's made. Yeah, so, I mean, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Josh, uh, just to give a little rundown for, uh, for the listeners here, uh, three-time All-Star, uh, four, top four in the NL in saves in each of the last three years. Uh, three-time Trevor Hoffman Award winner as the National League's best reliever, 2018, 2019. Teammate Devin Williams got it in 2020, and then you got it back in 2021, so three out of four there. Uh, absolutely dynamite with all three pitches. And this year was the uh, the leader. We mentioned win probability added uh, in, a, in a show a week or so, guys. And, uh, and this one, this year, 4.8 win probability added best in the major league. So out of all big league pitchers last year, can't really say anybody else uh, did a, had a more direct impact on their team winning games than Josh because of the high leverage pitching. One thing I wanted to ask you about was how has, how have you dealt with the different change in your usage? So if we look at 2019, you had 15 saves of four plus outs that didn't just lead the major leagues. That was the most by any pitcher in any season since John Smoltz back in 2004. So it was very unusual at the time to have a, a multi-inning, multi-out, four-plus-out type of uh, closer there. Now, this year, more of a traditional one-inning, come in, strike out the side in the ninth and call it a day. How has the different usage affected you? It's helped a lot. It's, it's helped through health throughout the season. It's helped me um, kind of gauge and know exactly how my body's feeling to, um, you know, know if I can go three in a row. Um, so I think that's been the biggest thing is just the health part of it. Um, you know, also, I think what helped me out a lot was my routine. It helped me build a routine um, going into the game and, and knowing exactly what I needed to be ready. So when that ninth came, I was at the best of uh, the, my best ability, um, you know, warming up and then going into the game. Josh, is there something that generally tells you, maybe it varies, but is, in, in, is there a boilerplate arrival in your mind that can tell you, Hey, I'm good for multiple innings tonight, or I can go 
back-to-back games or three straight games? Yeah, I think I think it's the three straight games. I mean, obviously, it, it depends on the work the workload that you have those first two. Um, now, if you have you know a pretty quick second second inning or second game, and you know you have an, a night game following that, I mean, obviously, going in from a night to a day game, that's a, that's a quick turnaround. But um, it it also depends on how you're feeling through that. But um, I think it's helped me just you know know the body, know you know you can feel exactly uh, if your legs, I mean, for me, it's, it's about my body, my legs, my lower half and how that feels. Cause I mean, once you get on the mound, you're not going to feel your arm anyways. You know, the interesting part for me is, is, uh, you know, I ask a lot of pitchers a similar type questions. Cause I'm curious, you know, I haven't, I retired in 2003, you know, I played for 17 years as a pitcher and, you know, I, I'm fascinated with all the new toys and technology and some pitchers like it pitch, you know, they want to know their numbers. Other pitchers still pitch by feel. And I was curious with you, you know, it's such a dynamic delivery, the way you coil, the way you do use your whole body, the deception that's built into that delivery. And then secondly, how do you know when you get out of whack? Do you use the numbers? Do you know everything that's available to you in a progressive organization like the Milwaukee Brewers? Do you know what your vertical and horizontal movements are? Do you know your inside numbers or, your release point uh, in, in terms of outing to outing and how you get right when things are going on, you know, off, offline a little bit. Um, honestly, I don't focus too much in the numbers. Uh, I couldn't tell you exactly what my bird or any of that stuff is. Um, for me, it, my biggest thing is feel, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a feel guy, even when I'm, when I'm pitching, um, you know, if I'm getting off, there's, there's spots where I hit in the strike zone that if I'm missing that, that tells me, you know, this is going on, you need to, you know, for instance, if I'm, if I'm missing arm side up and away, I mean, that's a pretty generic one, but you know, I'm opening my front half and I need to stay on that a little bit longer, maybe ride that slope down. Um, that's kind of one of the easiest ones, but um, that's just an example of kind of how I feel and I see the results um, that kind of tell me if I'm, if I'm working well down the mound or, you know, my arm path is clean, um, you know, if I'm cutting the ball, whatnot. So, there's, there's multiple things that kind of I've been able to pick up just through my career, uh, learn out. There's just really feel the ground and, and how you get down the mound. Yeah, that, that, I love that answer. Um, you know, the ball flight doesn't lie. For young pitchers out there, if you're looking to make quick adjustments, what Josh just said is so important because where the ball travels and where you're, in, you're intending it to travel tells a story. And you can, you know, you can have your own checklist. And, and, and if it's up and away, if you're missing up and away, if you're late, if, your arm, if you're hanging on to it too far and you're, you're yanking it down and away, there's certain mechanical adjustments you can make right away. That's part of the field game. I think it's a little bit lost. I love, love that answer for young pitchers to pay attention to the ball flight. It tells a story without a doubt. Absolutely. And David, I love when you ask some of these pitchers if they concentrate on some of the metrics and, and whether they know about their access and stuff like that. And a lot of the pitchers we talk to have seriously nasty stuff, just like Josh. And it's a lot of fun to hear when they say, no, I just rely on feel or, you know, I just focus on feel. And Josh, we had Corbin Burns on a few weeks after he won the Cy Young. And he said, he doesn't like to look at the numbers during the season. He waits until maybe the off season or during spring training to concentrate on that. But during the year, he generally relies on his feel, but he also relies heavily on the self-evaluation process that an organization like the Brewers have, have kind of incorporated. And you're, you're seeing that with several teams throughout the game. What is your self-evaluation process like after you pitch? Maybe the day after, what are you looking at? Um, right after I pitch, you know, I think the biggest thing for me um, I wait till I get in the car and I'll rewatch the game uh, and, I, and I'll focus on kind of what my intent was for that pitch. Um, you know, what result did that give? Did that give me a swing and miss? How did he take this pitch? Um, so I kind of analyze that. I don't think about it too much, but I just kind of uh, I want to know what I'm doing and if I'm doing that right as the result. So um, you know, that's, I try and keep it as simple as possible. This game is hard enough. Um, and the more you start thinking about it, the more you, you carry that into the next day. Um, and, and I think that's one of the biggest things that uh, as, us as ball players, we can, we can do that a lot. We can carry 
Um, you know, whether that's within in that bat and you make a bad pitch, you carry that on to the next pitch. So I think for me, it's, it's, it's seeing it um, right in my face, knowing what I wanted to do and then erasing it from the memory bank and moving on. We touched a moment ago or so about using your legs, kind of knowing when to push the limit based on your legs, your lower half. I think when fans watch you, one of the things that must stand out is the delivery, that corkscrew leg kick. And I see that, I see your body type. And for me, it just screams, hey, this is custom made, right? This looks like this belongs with this certain body type. How'd you discover the leg kick that you have where you're kind of recoiling and just mechanically, what do you think that type of motion does for you? What is that setup? Uh, I think it's evolved over the, over the time. Um, in high school, I was really different. Um, you know, growing up, Dontra Willis was, was a big guy that had the, the crazy high leg kick and uh, kind of followed me, you know, obviously being a lefty, it's kind of one of the things uh, that I enjoyed watching. Moving on from that, um, going to the or Orioles organization, made a, a few minor adjustments to my delivery where my lower half was syncing up with my upper half. Um, and that actually helped me get a little bit more velocity, stayed fluent through my mechanics and just continued to learn how to move with my body. And I think um, that was probably the key, the key thing for me is, um, you know, just continuing to learn. And, and I think getting down the mound was the biggest thing. It, it feels like, you know, I, I covered your, your postseason series a couple of years ago for Fox and, uh, to me, the loudest cheers I heard was when you were called in the game, running in from the bullpen, and the reaction that you've gotten there in Milwaukee now, and now obviously progressing to the you know the kind of the more traditional type closer. I mean, what's that feel like when you come in? When you bust through the gates, you feeling that that effect from the crowd? You getting that rush, or are you more of a, you just trying to block everything out and, and, and stay focused on your job at hand? No, absolutely, coming out there and and hearing the fans scream. I think that's one of the coolest things ever. Um, you know, no matter how long you play, no matter how long you hear that, uh, it still gives you chills. It, it gets you excited. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things is, is why I play this game is, is for the interaction with the fans and, and being able just to we all we're all enjoying the game of baseball right then and there. And I think that's the coolest thing. And, um, you know, once I get on the mound, that's when I, I, I zone focus and, uh, you know, really lock it in. But, you know, that's my that's my trip from the bullpen to the mound. That's, that's when I get to just embrace everything and enjoy that moment. Yeah, it just seems like the Milwaukee fan base has embraced you so much because you've come through, you know, in the, in the time you've been there. So that, that's one of the exciting parts of the games, you know, is people were talking about starting pitchers nowadays and too many relievers, too many pitching changes. But yeah, to me, when you see Josh Hader come in the game and you see the crowd react like that, boy, that, that's exciting to me. And, that's that's the way it's been since he's really been in Milwaukee. He's the guy when that bullpen door opens, or the crowd lights up, and to me, that's a that's that's pure excitement, you know. And I I, I can't imagine you don't just you just you know float float in uh, from the bullpen on that and really lift you up. I know I did when I pitched. I loved the, you know the crowd and, and kind of feeding off of that emotion and trying to keep it under control at the same time, but. You know, it's a, you're a fun guy to watch up there in Milwaukee, man. When you come in there, it's, it's, it's lights out and it's exciting. And, you know, the last, you know, one thing I had, you know, one question I had was, you know, your manager, Craig Council has got such a reputation for being so progressive and new school on the communication side. And, and as, as your role has evolved, you know, what's your impressions there? Has, has he always told you ahead of time what he's looking for from you? Or is it sort of like, Hey, whenever you need me, I'm ready. Just, just, uh, just call down there. Counts has been one of the greatest managers I've ever played for. I think the communication standpoint on his end, uh, you know, it, it's key. It, it's, you know, one of the things is you feel like you're really connected with him. That's one of the things coming in every year is he, he wants, he wants us to feel connected. Um, you know, we're a family, we're there with each other, you know, six months out of the year. And I think that's one of the biggest things as a clubhouse is that's what you want. You want to be able to uh, feel relaxed, feel easy uh, going around each other. Uh, and be able to communicate at the end of the day. That's, that's all we can ever ask for is uh, to be on the same page with each other. You hear that from a lot of Brewer players, that sense of connection that, that Craig Council provides to his clubhouse. Um, so I'm, I'm just doing the math in my head. 
as we're talking here. So Josh, you're 27 now, and you mentioned looking up at Dontrell Willis and that pronounced leg kick when he came onto the scene. You had to be around seven or eight or so when Dontrell Willis really exploded and fans really took notice. I mean, the Marlins won in 03, the World Series. He was on that team. Were you as a, a little leaguer or, you know, when you're going through grammar school, middle school, are, are you exaggerating with that leg kick on the mound as much as Dontrell Willis was? Or are you trying to be Dontrell? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, one, I got to find this picture to see if I can bring it up for you guys. But uh, we went to Cooperstown one year, uh, Dreams Park. And I think that was the one time I remember seeing a picture that we had. Uh, and I remember I tried to get that leg as high as possible. And, <laughs> you know, obviously you, you feel like you're doing it as a kid, but, um, you know, I probably wasn't as high as him. But, you know, that was I mean, he was the dream. You know, that's what you do. You imitate your, your guys and um, you feel you feel awesome when you're doing it as a little kid as well. You're probably like there. You're you're. There's a lot of moving parts to that as well. But then you're you're likely hitting your spots and you're saying to yourself, "Yeah, I think this could work. Yeah, this this is what we could go with for sure." And then David, you're talking about coming out of the bullpen, the rush that you must get from Milwaukee fans. And then when you think about it, with the way you have your delivery set up, there are probably kids in the Wisconsin area playing youth baseball and emulating your delivery. Did you ever? stop and think about that uh you know I think that's one of the coolest things I think that's why we do this like I said um you know just the I mean it's a kid's game at the end of the day we're all just all trying to have fun with it um but but knowing a kid uh, you know watched me on tv came to a baseball game um and and enjoyed how I pitched and I mean that's at the end of the day that's what you want uh you want you want that to uh to touch you know it's just something little just by playing a game but you know you could you could touch kids heart just by you know playing what you love and, and him obviously having the same passion in the game david james did you ever try to be anyone when you were young and, and playing youth baseball yeah i was oh. just kidding you, you were mind melding here yeah absolutely you know me you know me i've talked about him louis tian louis tian threw sidearm sliders and he turned his back and similar to josh a little bit i mean he had this this wild delivery and all these uh glove movements all through his delivery so he was he was charismatic to me i don't know James, who who'd you watch grow? I, I couldn't pull off the Hideo Nomo spin all the way around thing. So, yeah. but I mean, as far as just hitting uh, Paul O'Neill with the little toe tap. Yes, there you go. Nineties, you're a nineties kid. That's right. Yeah, I had um, I had this batting stance of Andre Scalaraga because I was actually I was a little afraid of getting hit by the pitch, so I would have my lead foot step out toward first base and he always had all that wide open stance so that front foot was back and it would you know you'd take the step up instead of out uh toward the pitcher so that was taught to me and I'm like oh this is this is what I kind of need to do if I you know want to make an impact so uh the big cat Andres Galarraga was was definitely for me um Josh some mechanical stuff that I wanted to touch on going back to 2021 because you started throwing a changeup a lot more to offer a, a little bit of variety between the fastball and the slider but it's not something that you just discovered you've kind of always had a changeup in your back pocket but what was telling you how or when to introduce it to opponents um you know I, I had a changeup when I was a starter I think that was a big pitch for me um, didn't use it as much as I wanted to, um, going into the big leagues, you know, I got away with the first two years being able to use my fastball a lot more, obviously with these hitters, these guys are, they're going to know what you throw. Then you're going to know your location, uh, and they're great hitters. So you got to adjust. If you don't adjust, then that's how you get left behind. And I think for me, I added the slider, um, and the slider started to, to play good, but then I only had one side of the plate covered. Um, so that changeup allowed me to cover both sides of the plate. And, you know, obviously the hitter is going to tell me when I should break it out. But just being able to attack both sides of the plate um, with two with three different speeds have been uh, it's been game changing for me. And obviously, I don't throw the changeup uh, a, a big percentage by any means, but um, just throwing it in here and there. And then that bat can really throw off the, the timing of a hitter. And do you uh... 
do you know coming in the bullpen, you know, I mean, I know it can be tricky, you know, how you warm up, especially as a reliever, you feel great. And then you get on the mound, it's not quite there. It's tricky. Are you the type that, that just follows the lead of the catcher or, or are you driving the bus? Are you shaking off? You know exactly what you want to throw or do you kind of follow the lead a la Mark Burley used to do with the White Sox? I think it's a little bit of both. I think, uh, you know, Omar and um, when we had Manny, I think, you know, they, they knew exactly what they wanted to do with the hitters. I mean, they've been catching the whole game, so they know and they can read these hitters. Um, obviously, knowing myself and, and knowing what works best for me, um, you know, if I feel a situation where I need to throw a different pitch, I'll shake to it. But at the end of the day, I, I feel like we're, we're on a pretty good, um, you know, combinations throughout and, and knowing what we uh, what we feel is best. So um, just trusting the catcher as well. I think that's the biggest thing at the end of the day when you're you're spending from spring training on and, and just having a multiple years, it's you, you know what what you're looking for and you know, you know what what you really want to throw. Um, you know, I don't think the hitter uh, coming forward really tells you exactly what you want to throw, but reading that bat and, and reading the swings, I think that's kind of makes, that's what you make the adjustments throughout. So you expand the pitch variety in 2021. And at the same time here, you cut down your barrel percentage at an extreme rate, pretty much like by 50%. It was, uh, it was a little over 12 and a half in 2019. It was 14.7% in 2020. And then last year it dropped to 6.3%. Do you think that concentrated pitch variety helped lead to less barrels in 2021? 100%. Um, and also, I think I've been able to locate my fastball a little bit better than I, I have in the past. Um, but obviously, adding the two different speeds is, is, has been a big help. Um, you know, if you get a guy out front a little bit um, on a breaking ball or, or a changeup, you know, he's, he's not going to have that barrel control um, because he may be expecting that, that fastball. So uh, being able to mix it up a lot, I think that's, that's probably been the key um, just in general for my success. Success is there. So go, go James. No, just, just to jump in here. So the, the fastballs percentage has been going down from, you know, 70, eighties now down to 65, but batting averages for all three pitches. 103 against the fastball, 159 against the slider, 176 against the changeup. Over 30% strikeout rate in all three pitches. And what really jumped out to me was that the swing and miss rate, the whiff rate, was 40-plus percent on all three pitches, including the changeup, which is a little bit newer in the, in the fold. Unfair, right? Unfair advantage. Closer with three pitches and getting that kind of swing, swing and miss rate. It is, it is remarkable when you think about it. And you know, it's, it's, it's a mindset too, I guess, when you know you have those weapons in your back pocket and that's a confidence builder, especially for a closer, you're coming in and maybe, you know, the third straight game, you know, you, you can mix in your change up. I know, especially the right-handed batters a little bit more, uh, you know, that extra weapon, man, that's, that's gotta be a confidence builder for you. Absolutely. And I think, and like you said, that's, that's the biggest thing is, is knowing that if you're going three in a row, you, you have that, that secondary to, uh, to help you get away because your fastball realistically isn't going to be what it was that first, that first game you came out. So, um, you know, being able to mix it up is, is huge. How do you feel about genuine emotion on the mound? Let's say if you punch out a guy with the bases loaded, big strikeout, you give it the fist pump or the bat flip generation. Any, any, I mean, if it's authentic emotion, you okay with it? Or is, is there a fine line still there for you? A little bit old school in that regard. No, I mean, I think I think everybody plays this game with different passion and they show their emotions differently. I think at the end of the day, uh, you, you show your emotion as long as it's not directed towards me or my team. So be it. We play this game. We know how hard this game is. Um, if you want to celebrate and, and do your thing, so be it. Do it. Um, but I think it, you draw that line when it's directed at you or the team. Hey, which hitter brings out the best version of Josh Hader? Man, I, there's a few. There's a few. Um, you know, Freddie Freeman. He's been he's been a good one for me. Um, you know, obviously ending the season last year with that homer, but uh, just that bat he puts puts up against me. Uh, it, it's been a fun split with him. Um, Freddie, Freddie's just uh, he's got really good eye of this of the strike zone. So 
um, you know, trying to get him off guard is, is, is very tough to do. You know, Rizzo was another guy. I think, I think it's funny if you think about it, you don't, you don't think lefties uh, would be the, the hard, hard one to face, but, you know, Rizzo and, and Freddie have, have been fun uh, to, to play against. Hey, don't worry though. You're not the only pitcher who probably utters those names. I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> Freddie Freeman is a common answer for that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we'd be remiss, man, if we uh, we didn't extend a uh, belated congratulations. We saw on your Instagram that you're going to be a dad for the first time later this year. Congrats there. Absolutely. Thank you. We're excited about it. Uh, baby boy coming in 4th of July. So, wow. Um, nice. Big, big news for us. That, what, that's uh, a game changer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What are you most excited for about being a dad? Uh, I think it's just, just learning life again, um, learning to enjoy the little things in life. You know, I, I feel like I don't have a kid, but, uh, I feel like once you go through that memory and, and you go through the stages and the steps, uh, you know, you, you learn to just enjoy the little things of life and enjoy each day, um, as it is. At the very top, we were talking about your content production. You were talking about some of the hunting content that you provide. You got a lot of hobbies. You hunt, you fish, you like to golf. But, and David could probably attest to this too. Look, the laws of parenting and time, they kind of say that you're not going to be able to do all of those hobbies once you become a parent. So what is kind of non-negotiable for you here? What, what do you have to make time for? Hunting, man. I think at the end of the day, hunting is, uh, is the one I have to do. Whitetail bow hunting is probably one of the favorite things I, I do. Uh, learned it in, in probably junior year of high school. My buddy showed me how to do it uh, and loved it ever since. I think that was one of the biggest things for me, being able to get out in the, in the woods, nature, um, and just, just that's my peace of mind. Just keep it quiet uh, and just watch animals do their thing. Uh, I think you don't have to harvest an animal to, to enjoy it. I think it's, um, it's just fun, fun time to be out there. Well, that's the hobby that you can justify because look, you got, you got extra mouths to feed now. So it's the, it's the one that you, you know, it's not like going out on the golf course for half the day and, and kind of not coming back with anything. So that's a, that's a good one to justify. So as we wrap things up here, one thing we like to do on towing the slab is that for every guest that comes on the pod, we end it by giving the guest the chance to ask something to an upcoming guest on the podcast. So we're going to tell you the name of a guest that's coming on the show. You're going to have to quickly come up with a question to ask them. And we're going to save that question. We're going to relay it to them when they appear on the pod. But first, we need to backtrack. We need to give you your question from a prior guest on Toe in the Slab. And that guest is the pitching ninja, Rob Friedman. He was our guest on our prior episode. So here is what the ninja had for you. I want to know like kind of when he realized that his fastball was as unhittable as it is. Was it mostly, was there, there any analytics based on that? Was it hitter based off hitters? And what does he think makes that special in his own mind? Like how is he able to get his fastball to, uh, get on a plane to miss so many to miss so many bats i know is it is it the the arms and legs and the weird you know kind of the weird arm slot is there a special trick that he does with his hand to try to get a little bit of rise on the ball what is it like i want to know what the key to that is what do you have josh um i think the trick is um the deception one i think the second thing is as a kid growing up i think um you know, my dad didn't want me throwing a, a, a curveball or, or an off speed like that. So I ride and die by my fastball ever since then, even when I was throwing, you know, 80 miles per hour in high school. I think that was the biggest thing is I needed to locate that fastball because at the end of the day, you're not going to throw a, a slider or a curveball or change up, um, you know, 70% of the time. You know, when you get behind, you, you're not going to throw a curveball most times at a young age. So, you know, I learned to use my fastball at the top of the zone inside. Um, and I think that's where I made, made my success because, you know, I wasn't scared to go inside or, you know, if I missed, I, I brushed a guy back. Like I wasn't scared to do that again. Um, I knew I wasn't going to hurt anybody. I knew that 
um, I had the confidence in that. And that's what kind of grew with me is I had the confidence no matter what. And then just learning the other pitches, um, kind of what brought everything else back together. You know, I was able to control that slider, which then made the fastball location a little bit better because I could feel that, that finger, um, pressure and release. So, uh, I think it was a big mix on, on all that. That's a solid of an answer. I think pitching ninja is going to get there. That was, that was very nice, yeah. but yeah. Right back, back to, to high school, choice. right? Yeah. Right back to high school and his dad's advice to him, you know, you learn how to throw that fastball where you want to. That's great advice. All right. So one of our upcoming guests here, as it's your turn to ask a question, he is a, he's a pitcher that made his big league debut at the very end of last season. So he's, he's young here and he's someone whose stuff is off the charts, uh, the, the charts as, as a big time prospect here. So Josh, if you can ask one question for Tampa Bay Rays right-hander Shane Boz, what would it be? Does it have to be pitching related? Could be anything you want. Okay. What was your greatest memory coming to the show? Was it going to the stadium? Um, you know, was it being in the, the clubhouse, seeing the ballpark, smelling the grass? What was it? And also, what is your favorite stadium that you played in? That's a double. That's a double whammy. I don't know if we can do that on the podcast, but. We'll make time for it. Don't All worry. good. All good. <laughs> Although the grass may smell a little different than most grasses at the trop, but yeah, exactly. Maybe, I, I, off the top of my head, I'm not sure if it was a home turf. debut or a road debut. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure either. But if it was a turf, that makes sense. Awesome. Yeah, I, I love the question though. It's great. Yeah, very good. Because you could tell if you're a big leaguer, those mo those moments yes. you're able to probably slow them down right guys i felt like i was running underwater when i came in from the bullpen on my first appearance <laughs> in the big leagues i mean it was surreal it was like a i couldn't i, I couldn't get to the mound you know my legs were moving but I just everything felt heavy you know it was just so emotional it's a great question awesome josh thanks so much for the time man we appreciate it you continue to uh, light it up on the mound and look we have high expectations for you in 2022. I'm sure you have them for yourself as well. And that's what makes it fun. So best of luck to you. And we'll talk to you down the road. Appreciate it guys. It's been a pleasure having, uh, having me on and uh, it's great to see you guys take care and enjoy everything. You too. Thank you, Josh. David, I thought one of the questions you asked him was really interesting about following the lead of the catcher or if Josh was the one driving the bus, so to speak, what do you think the split of that dynamic is like around major league baseball. How many pitchers would you say call their own shots? How many pitchers are following the lead of the backstop? Uh, you know, it's different for short relievers. You know, they, they have less pitches to work with. Generally they go with their top two pitches and a starter that's trying to get two times through the order, maybe potentially three times through the order. They're going to maybe shake off a little bit because your feel can change inning to inning, but you know, it, it depends on the personality. And I, I always use Mark Burley as an example. And I contrast him with Steve Traxel. Steve Traxel was a pitcher who was nicknamed the human rain delay because he would shake off and he, you know, he really was in the selective process, really jammed up by the selection process instead of the execution process. And for some pitchers, it's better to take that burden off of your mind. Mark Burley was, tell me where you want it. I'll throw it there. I don't want to worry about the selection process. I want to focus on the glove, the target, the quality of the pitch. And it worked exceptionally well for him. He's a borderline Hall of Famer right now, Mark Burley. Uh, so, yeah, that, that strategy could work for certain guys. Other guys, not so much. Uh, it depends on the feel in your hand, the ball, the, you know, whether you feel like you're spinning it as good inning to inning. It can change inning to inning. So it's different for a starter than a reliever. For Josh Hader, occasionally I would say he might want to shake his head and say, you know, I, I, I feel a really good fastball here. I feel like I could really add or hump up on this one uh, or maybe snap off a slider. Maybe I got I got a feel. So sometimes you get a ball in your hand. It feels different. The seams feel different. And you, you convince yourself, hey, this grip's going to work. Let me just throw this pitch. And with conviction, sometimes that works. Even if it's the wrong pitch, sequence, from a sequence standpoint, you know, the quality of the pitch is better because you have conviction behind it. And that's always the, the catch-22 for pitchers, throwing the, throwing the pitch with conviction as opposed to throwing the right pitch. That phrase, I always hear it 
you know, constantly. And, and James, I see you smirking too. That's that's like one of the, if, if, you know, you're making another book about David Cohn saying pitching with conviction is going to be one of the quotes pasted in there for sure. And it always, always kind of just pops up into my head whenever I'm watching pitching uh, on any, on any game broadcast. All right. This week in pitching history, James, what do you have for us as we enter the second week of February here, man? It's a little tougher. A lot of the player movement is usually died down around this time of year. Spring training hasn't quite started yet, but I think I got, I got one with a bang here. So never doubted you February 11, 2001. That's 21 years ago. Friday Pittsburgh's three river stadium is imploded. It was the home of the pirates and the Steelers from 1970 to 2000 hosted two world series that they won 1971 and 1979 hosted the first world series uh, night game in 1971, two all-star games in 1974. And in 94, Coney, you pitched in that one, uh, saw three no hitters. Now what I wanted to get to tie in with Coney here is I think David, you and your era of pitching had a really great spread in you, you were in based in both eras. So you started your career, a lot of those old uh, cookie-cutter AstroTurf garbage stadiums were really still uh, in use. The Places like Three Rivers Stadium and, and Riverfront and the Vet and all these other places. But you, you were around, and your prime and into the later part of your career was the boom of retro ballparks and all the newer ballparks that we have now. So, Coney, you pitched in 35 MLB parks, and 15 of them in, are still in use. So what do you think – the, the differences are as far as even the mound or just in general, the, the facilities that, you know, players were using in, in the eighties and early nineties compared to the late nineties, two thousands. Yeah. You know, it, it almost, you almost have to get into economics in terms of, uh, you know, dual use stadiums and it makes sense for the, the municipal, you know, the municipalities in terms of a, an investment, you know, that's, I'm not an economist, you know, there's, there's different economists that will argue that till the, till the cows come home in terms of whether it, it's transferred dollars, whether it really works. We should have dual use stadiums. They were ugly. Uh, the AstroTurf was hard as a rock. The mounds were, were inconsistent because they had to break them down for football, especially when the seasons overlapped. So, yes, there, there were some mounds that looked crooked. You know, I got on the mound at, at Three River Stadium one time and I looked at home, home plate, looked like it was off center to me because they had to break down the mound to build it back up because they had a Steelers game. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was what I was dealing with back then. It was like, this doesn't look right. And I think there's an NBA game where Luka Don, Doncic said the rim's crooked a couple nights ago. And Friday night. He, he was he was right. Right. That was kind of how I felt on the mound sometimes with some of those old stadiums and where, where the mounds were, were broken down and rebuilt you know, several times throughout the year. So, you know, at Camden Yards was was a was a game changer. You know, when we first saw Camden Yards, it brought back the nostalgia, it brought back the intimacy, the quirkiness of baseball dimensions is kind of what sets it apart, you know, from 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 different sports, you know, basketball, you know, the court's the same. Uh, the arena may be different, but the playing playing uh, surface is the same. Same with football, but baseball—it's that—that's the beauty of baseball, right? The quirkiness of some of these ballparks. So, bringing Camden Yards brought that back. Uh, San Francisco was huge. Go from Candlestick Park to uh, what they built in the China Basin down there is just remarkable. We opened that up too. The Yankees in an exhibition game—we were the, one of the first ones to play there. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was really interesting. It made. When you, it made you feel special if you're a ball player and you got to, to play in a new park like that. You know, if you were the first members of the Orioles to play in Camden Yards or the first members of the Giants to play, play out there at Pac Bell or whatever it was called back then in the China Basin, um, you know, that, that made you feel like, wow, you know, th- th- this is important. It made you feel good. It made you feel more important. It made you feel like you had a real home. So it did psychologically. It made a big difference. Economically, uh, that's an argument for another show on another day. Cosmetically, I will add that watching NFL football as a young kid and seeing some of those games at Candlestick or at Oakland Coliseum and watching the NFL players run through the baseball infield was like the ugliest sight that you can possibly see. It just did not make for a good aesthetic watching NFL games as a kid. All right, three up, three down as we close out the show here this week. James, lead us off. All right, well, I'll stay in the uh, the, the football intruding into baseball things. So this is a so football on a baseball field. Uh, you guys might've heard of uh, the Super Bowl being played uh, this coming Sunday, uh, Cincinnati Bengals versus the Los Angeles Rams. All I'm hoping for is that the game is better than the one 
baseball postseason series between Cincinnati and L.A. in MLB history. 1995 NLDS, the Reds swept the Dodgers three games to none, combined score 22 to 7. They, they beat them up, and it was a blowout. I hope we get a good game on Sunday. That Reds team had Barry Larkin in his MVP season and three good pitching performances in that series, Pete Shurek, John Smiley, and David Wells shutting it down for the Reds. They went to the NLCS, lost to the Braves. That NLDS series against the, uh, against the Dodgers, that's the last time the Reds have won a postseason series. The only team that has gone longer since their last playoff uh, round victory was, is the Pirates from 1992. Wow. Yeah, David Wells, a deadline pickup in 95, no? Yeah, and he pitched well down the stretch. He pitched well for them in the postseason. Maybe that's something that makes the that made the Yankees go, "Hey, you know this guy. This guy can pitch in October. We need this guy." You know, the old school term for Boomer was he, he had a rubber arm. He really did. I mean, he had Tommy John surgery early in his career and got it out of the way. But since since that point, his arm was unbelievable. He could, I guarantee you, right now he's fifty eight years old. He could throw batting practice right now. He's right <laughs> out of bed. You know, his arm still. Still, it's just just like rubber. <laughs> the question is, Willie, Woody, what do you want him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's exactly. It. That's another question. All right, for me, uh, just a, a quick recommendation, really. A few great baseball reads that I, I want to direct some listeners to. The first is from Jesse Rogers, who did a great job supplying us, and, and you heard probably heard this on Talking Baseball and and perhaps on uh, Baseball Today with with Chris and, and Trevor, but. Uh, Jesse supplied us with some really informative pieces on the lockout, the CBA talks, specifically the first were the dates that we really need to know about as it pertains to spring training being delayed or spring games being missed, or even if regular season games are in jeopardy. So that's a great timeline to kind of keep with you as we go through the lockout. But the other one came out on Monday this week, Jesse and and Andrew Miller spoke and Andrew is part of the MLB PA executive subcommittee is a board member there. And Andrew did a nice job detailing why the players are fighting for specific elements and kind of lifts part of the curtain on the negotiation. So definitely want to forward you to that article. But then the other is an excellent mailbag series put up by Eno Saris and Lindsay Adler at the athletic. We, we all three of us love each of their work and it's cool that they collaborated on this. And this is, obviously more fun to learn about than any like labor negotiations. So we really highlight this one, but it answers a lot of fan questions about analytics and which advanced metrics are important to front offices. So they do a great job at simplifying some of these answers. And I think it's a good read. It helps you understand where the game's at today. I think it'll make you a smarter baseball fan. So those are some of my uh, really favorite uh, things to read lately. I wanted to share them here. It's a great lead because that is really, you know, what, what our podcast is all about, right? The old yeah. school and the new school and trying to educate and peel back the layers and, you know, uh, pay respects to both, both sides of the baseball fan, you know, whether you, uh, you like the numbers or you don't, or you're anti-analytics or not, you know, it's hard to be anti-anything if you don't understand it. So it helps, you know, if you want to push back on something that you think is detrimental to the style of the game that, that you prefer, you know, it, it's good to learn about it and push back on it. I think that's why those articles are so great. I mean, you know, Lindsay and Eno are two of the best in the business. As you said, we're both, we're big fans of them. And, and Lindsay does a great job of explaining that as to why maybe there is an older disgruntled fan that that's kind of been left in the, in the dark, so to speak. Well, we can still reach them. We can still explain to them that there's some common denominators between old and new school. And that's what we try to do right here is try to show, you know what, that thing you thought about all those years ago, 30 years ago, uh, we can measure that now and actually confirm what your eye test told you back 30 years ago when you saw it, whether it was who had the best curveball or who, who was the best center fielder. How about Willie Mickey and the Duke, the, the, the golden era of New York, who was the best center fielder? You know, we, we can peel back the layers and actually tell you now even more information about, you know, who was the best center fielder, who got the best jump. You know, Yogi Berra used to say about Joe DiMaggio, he never had to dive because he was always there. He was positioned right. He ran so well. He was so graceful that he would just run down fly balls. He never had to really dive. 
Well, nowadays we can measure that through Doppler radar, through tracking systems, through through uh, the Hawkeye systems. We can measure those sorts of things and 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 confirm what you thought your eye test was. And we can tell you who the best center fielder was now. Now we can go back and say it was probably Willie Mays. You know, just for argument's sake, it was probably Willie Mays. But you know, hey, Mickey Mantle was great. You know, it's hard to go against him offensively. He was unbelievable. Switch hitter. Uh, Duke Snyder was great. Fantastic player. I didn't get enough credit. But, you know, nowadays we, we can we can back you up and show you exactly, you know, some 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 metrics that, that can answer those questions. Who's the best at what? And that goes right back to James, what you and I talk about giving credit where credit is due. That, that, that's the most important thing I'm interested in, you know, is uh, telling you who deserves what, who who uh, who helped you win that ball game more? Who what plays were the most important to help you win a game or who helped you win a championship? Who contributed the most? Who deserves credit? That that's what I'm interested in. That that's why we're doing this podcast. Yeah, if you obviously if you want that in audio form, we're your guys, right? <laughs> uh, so so keep keep it right here with Toe on the Slab. But I think it's a uh, good good reading material. Check it out over at the Athletic. It's uh, some free pub there for Lindsay and yes. you know, great great job by them. And we have we do definitely do enjoy their work on a, a routine basis, not just on subject matters like this. All right, guys, that's gonna wrap it up this week. Big thanks to Josh Hader, closer of the Milwaukee Brewers, for coming on the show, joining us here. Big thanks, as always, to our great producer, Dan Rourke. And please, for all you listeners, be sure to rate, review, subscribe. It is the best way that you can support the show here. New episodes drop each and every Tuesday. So we'll talk to you next week. Towing the Slide Pitching with David Cohn is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Take care.